Hello and welcome to Argue With Us at GameIndustry.com. I'm Shella. And I'm Drew. And together we're arguing about the things that really matter in games and films and stuff. Indeed we are. And it is Season 4, Episode 21. Wow, indeed it is. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of episodes and seasons. Um, it is... When this airs, it's going to be Halloween. Yeah, so this, what... this might actually end up being episode like 22. We might have to do these a bit out of order. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay, but this uh, is t- episode 21 production order. You know, a yep. little behind-the-scenes look at how we do things here. Um, <laughs> yeah. What's our topic for this episode, Drew? Our topic is gothic in games. Uh, it's a kind of special episode this week because we've got some um, guest casters guest tosses, I guess we call them. Yeah. Uh, not, not to their faces. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, we've uh, just uh, pre-recorded a sort of uh, really interesting long discussion that we had. This is going to be quite a long episode, so you know, it might take you a couple of commutes to get through this one. Um, yeah. yeah, But it's it's all really interesting stuff. And uh, I, Again, I want to uh, thank Emily and Lauren, uh, Emily, Marlowe and Lauren Nixon, who came on and um, just give a fantastic uh, sort of interview and discussion about go- uh, what gothic is, you know, uh, how it applies to games. Talked about all the best gothic games, which you are about to listen to now. Uh, it's a really fantastic talk. We had a lot of fun recording it. And uh, one minor problem: uh, there is, there are some sound issues due to the sort of realities of recording podcasts between four people, always different equipment. We've tried our best to kind of minimize them as much as possible, but you'll probably notice a little bit of uh, fuzz on on one end. But uh, it's still audible, and we hope you enjoy it anyway. Yeah, let us know. We're delighted to welcome Emily Marlowe and Lauren Nixon to argue the toss this episode for our Halloween special on the gothic in games. Um, So could you introduce yourselves, um, tell us what you do and maybe what your connection are with gothic or gaming or both. Um, So Lauren, if we start with you. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm Lauren Nixon. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Sheffield. Uh, my thesis is called Conflicting Masculinities, um, and I study the figure of a soldier in the Gothic novel between 1764 and 1826, which um, might sound a little bit too old for the purposes of this, but uh, I also run something called Sheffield Gothic, which is a group of postgrads who put on um, reading groups and conferences and events. Uh, and one of the things that we did uh, this year was Game in the Gothic, which was a bit of a passion project for me. Uh, but overall, I'm interested in the way in which the Gothic as a genre um, evolves and mutates, but continually represents anxieties about things like nationality and gender. Um, so even though my focus is the long 18th century, um, I do a lot of contemporary stuff as well. Excellent. I think that's how um, I met Emily was through Gaming the Gothic that kind of came into my feed and I was like, oh my God, how do I not know about this thing? (laughs) Um, So Emily, introduce yourself and what you do. Okay. Um, So my name is Emily Marlowe. Um, I'm a PhD student at the University of Sheffield uh, where I study uh, religion masculinity and sexuality uh, in film and television and in video games most prominently. 
Um, so my research looks at um, representations of Jesus and Christ figures uh, in media. So I look at people like, um, I look at Jesus films, but I also look at things like Captain America. Um, mm -hmm. And I look mm -hmm. at the games that I look at are mainly Bioware games. So I look at Dragon Age, Inquisition and Mass Effect. Um, and I look at kind of how they deal with um, savior characters and also how those savior characters interact in regards to masculinity and sexuality. Um, as far as gothic stuff, I literally <laughs> um, <laughs> met, I met Lauren and um, a bunch of people who are, uh, I formed a group, a postgrad group, group called um, Sheffield Gothic, and I met them, and we basically had one of those conversations where they explained to me that everything that I liked ever since I was a teenager was actually Gothic, and that I should probably study Gothic stuff. Um, but I do it mainly as like a passion project um, because most of my research mm -hmm. is in biblical studies and cultural studies. But yeah, yeah. I wish there'd been Sheffield Gothic when I was going to uni. <laughs> <laughs> it would have changed everything. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we we do come off a little bit cultish sometimes. We're, uh, I think we're all a little bit too happy and welcoming for academics. We're like, hey, yeah, we did, did you know about the Gothic? <laughs> <laughs> come join us. One of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's like whenever we have like events on, I always love it when people come in who've never been to one of our events because like we're quite inclusive and we're quite welcoming, but also like we do things like we decorate and we bake cakes <laughs> and we like are just like the papers that are usually shown at Sheffield Gothic stuff are, are usually not what you would expect from mm. like traditional academic discourse. So I just mm. think it's really good. I love watching people react to coming to yeah. them. It sounds cool. Um, so we thought probably a useful thing would be to define gothic. Um, so most people probably think of women in 90s wandering through castles and graveyards. Um, if you said, you know, what is gothic <laughs> to them? So um, seeing as Lauren seems to be the queen of darkness <laughs> here tonight, <laughs> um, what, are, what, would, what are the key elements of gothic? Well, that is a title to live up to. Okay, I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> I mean, that is that is gothic. Um, you'd be surprised, actually, how often we get asked to explain what the gothic is, because it is a term that means many things, and I think that sometimes confuses people, because how can it mean so many things? Um, the brief history of it is that um, you may or may not be familiar with a third-century nomadic <laughs> Germanic people uh, called the Goths. So there were a group of, of barbarians, as we would consider them, um, who uh, originated from what we now know as Germany. There were the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths, and they were ultimately responsible for the fall of Rome. And Rome has always been considered um, by culture, Western culture, as you know the height of, of human civilization and democracy. So the Goths being responsible for the fall of Rome um, made them barbaric and made them barbarous. So the term Gothic came to be used to mean barbaric and uncivilized mm. and sort of like the antithesis of Rome. Um, and it stayed that way for a couple of hundred years and then during the Renaissance period we have obviously again a European reclamation of art and culture um, all of this stuff that we thought we'd lost but we were just obviously not looking far enough. Um, 
Gothic then became used to mean um, bad art. So in the Renaissance, they looked back at the medieval and they were like, oh, those churches are really ugly. <laughs> like, they are bad. And because, um, because there seems to be bad art, they started calling Gothic, meaning barbaric and barbarous mm. and uncivilized. So pretty much everything medieval became Gothic. So if you think about medieval art and culture and architecture, you've got the supernatural, you've got superstitions, you've got death, you've got the macabre, you've got things like Memento Mori and um, an art form called Dan's Macabre, which is very popular around the time of the plague that was images of skeletons dancing into uh, into towns with music and, and almost like a fair, and then obviously carting everybody off to the grave. Um, so... All of the medieval art and architecture and literature became known as Gothic. Um, so that's where the schools, the supernatural, the devil, the demons, um, a lot of the stuff that we would still consider to be Gothic today, that's where that comes into it. So over the course of the 18th century, there's a sort of reclamation of the Gothic. The first Gothic novel is published in 1764, and they, it kicks off this trend that is still going today, Gothic. Um, is still, you know, it's still very much what it was in 1764, even though it's also so much more. So the Gothic has always been a language of terror and wonder, of, um, you know, questioning uh, humanity, morality, um, mortality. It's been about using the supernatural to explore anxieties about the other, about the self. In more contemporary Gothic, you see the monster ghosts from being... Um, a point of terror to being um, a point of wonder. So if you think about the 90s Gothic, a lot of that supernatural romance, it's a, mm. it uses self-identification with the other. So rather than the other is the thing that we fear, the Gothic in contemporary culture has often become a way to explore uh, non-normative identities. So the Gothic can be transgressive and subversive. It can also be conventional. Um, so it is, it is I mean, many things all at once, but all of those things that you would consider to be gothic, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein is gothic, but then The Cure is gothic, and Adventure Time is Ooh, gothic. Oh, they would deny that. <laughs> I know, I know, <laughs> but, but it's true. <laughs> because it, it's because true, you're gothic, get over it, you sing about well, spiders. <laughs> they might not be goth, but they're certainly gothic, and there is that yeah. kind of Venn diagram. People are always really disappointed when they meet me, because I don't look very gothic. Yeah, um, but there is a there is an overlap between goth subculture and gothic because again it's this identification with the other and an expression mm. of self through um, discussions of death and mortality and the supernatural and a rejection of convention. So it's it's one of those forms I think because it is a language about anxiety and about things we are concerned about and things that we're not sure of. Every mm. generation has its own gothic. As much as I hate it to say it, something like Fifty Shades of Grey is still part of that gothic trend of, oh my gosh, there's this potentially subversive thing and I can explore a part of myself through it that maybe I was too afraid to talk about before. Mm, um, but it's seen it's, as kind of dark, I suppose. Yeah, and it's also mm. gothic novels in the 1800s were seen as dangerous and trashy. Um, mm. So anyone that's read Jane Austen's Nothing Grabby probably already knows this, but Mm-hmm. The gothic, <laughs> it was like, oh, don't let your daughters read gothic because they'll get funny ideas about things. About but, wandering through men's castles. Exactly. But then what was happening was you had female writers who were like, oh, okay, you, the, the male critic thinks that this is trashy. 
So I will mm. let them think it's trashy, but what I will do is write a story that will allow a young woman who otherwise knows nothing of the world to experience passion and terror and wonder. So it's it's always been a sort of language, um, a language of subversion and the other, and a way to communicate with each other, sort of under the nose of, of society and, and of patriarchal society in particular. Yeah, <laughs> and it has had that thing, like you said, of um, women being able to explore their sexuality and um, sort of move through, you know, move through the world and find passions and um, things that they weren't allowed to do um, when those stories were being written. Well, I'm yeah. still now. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, okay, so I think we've we got it. So if people think it's bats, castles, graveyards, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, sort of women in 90s, it is that and more as well. Yeah. Um, um, so, yeah, I'm quite interested in American Gothic and particularly Southern Gothic because it um, it moves the Gothic away from the European tradition, which is you know, very pale-skinned <laughs> um, women. Um, you know, everybody's white pretty much. Um, whereas once once it moves over to America, of course, with um, um, slavery and the fact that black people mm. are there, <laughs> um, it kind of shifts a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about American Gothic and particularly Southern Gothic? Yeah, because um, people might not be aware of what the difference is. Yeah, so Southern Gothic and American Gothic. Um, American Gothic and New England Gothic kind of comes first. Um, and it's coming out of a tradition um, that something like Dracula is a part of. So Dracula um, is one in a long line of Gothic texts that is very concerned about, um, about the other, about the foreign other. So Dracula himself is, you know, he's a racially ambiguous, he's culturally ambiguous, He's ancient. There's something subversive and potentially devious about him. So um, a lot of sort of Victorian Gothic is very concerned with um, with race and with civilization and with nationality and the kind of blending of borders and the confusion between national borders. Um, so American Gothic and early American Gothic in particular is very concerned with this idea of legacy. Um, and you get this in Edgar Allan Poe, and you get this, um, and I hate to mention it, but H.P. Lovecraft in quite a negative way. Uh, but you can see this anxiety there. Um, mm. So then you do start to get stuff like, uh, there's a lot of Creole Gothic. Mm. Um, so you get stuff like Florence Marriott's Blood of the Vampire, which comes out just before Dracula. Um, and there is the, the main character of that is a female psychic vampire who is of ambiguous origins, and this is one of the things that uh, you know the society she moves in are worried about. You know, they don't know what her family is, they don't know what her parentage is. So in the kind of early American tradition, there is this prevailing concern um, about the fact that this is a new nation. So how do you know who anybody is? And then is that important? So American Gothic, in its early stages, is very concerned with degeneration. Mm. Um, you have a lot of stories of families who have left behind a terrible past in England, um, you know, where they've been murderers or they've done something awful and that kind of followed them. Um, you have, obviously, the haunted house narrative, which is something that's always been present in the Gothic, but really starts to 
come alive in the American Gothic. Um, so New England is where kind of a lot of the early Gothic comes out from with people like Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and then as time goes by, you start to get um, you start to get Southern Gothic, which is usually centered around places like New Orleans and Louisiana. Um, and again, it's about this um, this idea of melting pots of societies and multiple different cultures and nationalities coming together and the anxiety coming out of that. And I know I keep using that word anxiety, but um, people were very worried about things like this. <laughs> um, so a lot of the a lot of the kind of um, the stories that you'll get in the early American Gothic are about vampires. Because there is a concern about the, the longevity of the vampire and the uncertainty of where the vampire comes from and the way that the vampires feed off others. Um, but Southern Gothic in particular is one of the traditions that I was kind of mentioned uh, a moment ago where as it's gone on, it's become a genre where members of minority communities can use the Gothic as a framework to explore their own identity, their identity as other, their identity as American, they can use it to reclaim a part of their identity, their sexuality, their heritage. Um, and over time, the Southern Gothic has become a place where you can have these conversations that seem to be taboo or subversive or transgressive in a really positive way. Um, so the Southern Gothic, the Southern Gothic is really interesting, uh, and if you're interested in American and Southern Gothic, I highly recommend um, Maisha West's work. She was a visiting scholar here with us at Sheffield last year, um, a Fulbright mm. scholar, and she's currently at the, uh, I believe, the University of Indiana, and she does some really interesting work on Black American Gothic and diaspora. Um, and oh, she, no. she would talk. What's her name, sorry. Maisha Wester. Um, okay. She's absolutely fantastic. Highly recommend. I've seen her give some really fascinating talks um, on Sounds diaspora great. gothic. Um, she does a lot on um, African American monstrosity and monsters. Um, she's a really fantastic scholar. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, if any, if you are interested in American gothic and in Southern gothic and in Black gothic, I highly recommend her work. She's she's doing some really interesting stuff. <gasps> that sounds amazing. That sounds, so, yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I've got stuff to read. Yeah, because I've tried googling it to find um, to to find you know the the black in Gothic, um, and it, I found it really difficult. Um, and then of course we've had things like Beyonce has been playing with those images in her Lemonade yeah. um, video, which was which was really cool. Um, yeah, so she was playing around with that sense of sort of southern decay, and yeah. um, I found um, southern Gothic is quite grounded, isn't it? It's, yeah, um, and it, um, it, it often, I mean, the Gothic often um, does this thing where they have the supernatural, but the supernatural isn't the thing that you actually need to be worried mm. of. The thing you need to be worried about is is people and what people are capable of and the things that people can do to other people. So a lot of Southern Gothic uses um, you know, the ghost story or the monster as a warning or remembrance of the past, but not as the, the thing that is actually, you know, the monster isn't the real monster. The real monster is the things that people can do to one another. And a really good yeah. example of that is Toni Morrison's Beloved, 
Mm -hmm. um, which is an excellent example of a black Southern Gothic text. Um, and the, the conventions that Morrison uses in the way in which she tells that story, um, you have this supernatural element, there's this idea of you know, vampirism, but the real horror is coming from real people, not from the supernatural. The supernatural is almost a byproduct of, of the transgression, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something you see um, again and again in these texts. Um, and I know uh, from hearing her give a, a couple of lectures that that's something that Maine she's really interested in and talks about very eloquently. Mm. Cool. So, are there any other are there any other examples of um, non-European cultures um, taking the Gothic and making it their own? Um, I mean, I was wondering <laughs> if. Um, uh, Latin American magical realism yeah. um, kind of crosses into the Gothic. And then, of course, we've got sort of East Asia, yeah. Japan and um, Korea. Really, yeah. like, di they dive into that. But... Yeah, definitely. So um, last year, the International Gothic Association, which is an academic organisation um, for academics and postgraduates working in the Gothic, uh, was held at um, the Universidad de las Américas Puebla, uh, which is in uh, central Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of um, that conference was devoted to exploring Latin American Gothic and the way mm. in which um, Latin American history feeds into the Gothic. So again, this idea of legacy and heritage and identity. Um, we also had, um, so the, the academic who ran the IDA last year, Enrique um, Ajuria Ibarra, um, he's um, at the University uh, of Puebla, and he does some really fantastic work on um, Latin American cinema, particularly Mexican cinema and Gothic cinema. So definitely, um, definitely in Mexican cinema, there's a massive tradition of the Gothic, um, and there's a lot of blending of um, of magical realism and the Gothic. Um, definitely magical realism um, mm. goes hand in hand. There's some really fantastic, um, really fantastic uh, books and films. Um, yeah, there's a, a big tradition there. And again, it's that kind of drawing on Aztec and Mayan legacy and then, mm. you know, the, the, the ongoing scars from uh, the conquistadors and what it means to be Mexican in like a contemporary society and how do you connect with your past. Um, there's a massive tradition there, really fascinating. Um, there was a, t a collection of short stories, and I, I can't remember the name of the author, but the, the English title is The Things We Lost in the Fire, mm. um, which is a fantastic collection of um, Latin American Gothic short stories that I highly recommend. Um, so yeah, Sounds certainly, good. certainly in Latin American tradition. Um, obviously, things like the Toro's movies, Pan's Labyrinth, um, is a really great example. Yeah. Um, the Shape of Water, but then you've got, um, yeah, you've got you've got a really interesting actually. Um, uh, I can't remember. I feel terrible because I can't remember the director's name. But uh, whilst we were at the conference, we watched um, a short film um, which was about. Uh, vampire nuns, um, <laughs> who, because there's, so in Puebla, uh, in, well, it's not in Puebla, it's in Cholula, which is a small town where the university is, uh, there is a convent that's built on top of what was once a 
temple of the Quetzalcoatl. And the story is that um, the conquistadors gathered all the people in the temple um, and then slaughtered them and then built this this convent on top of it. So there's a lot of kind of those narratives of things mm. being on top of other narratives. And you get that in the American Gothic as well, you know. Yeah. There's something I mean, underneath that's bleeding through that is refusing to be forgotten. Um, yeah. It's the Southern Gothic, it's with yeah, slavery, isn't yeah, it? And that exactly. guilt and the blood in the in the land kind of thing yeah. really feeds into that. Yeah, hundred percent. And again, a lot of the supernatural elements are often kind of um, memories of pain and trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so you have a really strong a really strong narrative there. And um, in terms of um, Southeast Asian Gothic, um, there's mm-hmm. been a lot over the last few years. A couple of really great texts. I think there's been a handbook as well about. Southeast Asian Gothic, um, which again is um, drawing on tradition. So if you think of um, a lot of Japanese movies, to think that the ring, there's often you know it drawing on an older legend. So you have things like contemporary horror films about yukai or about spirits and about demons. So there is again in the East Asian tradition that blending of contemporary and ancient and what it means to be like a modern member of society there's you often find in the gothic it's very concerned with the past and mm-hmm. how the past affects the present um but yeah i mean uh it's not it's an it's, it's an area that i'm hoping obviously the phd you have to be super specific while you're doing it um but i do find myself getting distracted um particularly by Latin American and um, Southeast Asian Gothic. Um, Emily and I have talked in depth about things like Pochamu's The Handmaiden, um, mm-hmm. which is based on a Sarah Waters novel called Fingersmith, which is also extremely gothic. So it's it definitely, um, if there's anyone out there that's thinking of studying the gothic at postgraduate level, those would be two areas to go into because people mm. are becoming increasingly interested in them. Um, and obviously, um, in terms of popularity with world cinema, um, it's slowly becoming um, more and more at the focus. So if there's any aspiring Gothic scholars mm. out there, I highly recommend thinking about going into uh, a more global Gothic. Cool. <laughs> okay. uh, well, you're getting really great, like, deep answers here. I'm just, <laughs> sorry, I'm not contributing much. I'm just sitting here kind of at rapt attention. Um, <laughs> Okay, so what was it you said your PhD was on? And my PhD, uh, my PhD is on um, the figure of the soldier in um, 18th century Gothic. So I look at um, mostly the revolutionary Napoleonic wars and the way in which masculinity and national identity are interconnected. Um, there was, as there always is, a crisis of masculinity. Um, in Britain right. in the long 18th century. So my thesis looks at the way in which that crisis and that anxiety was being represented, particularly in the Gothic fiction. Um, because the Gothic in the 18th century is usually always analogy. It uses the past to explore the present in a way that is safe, quote-unquote, in that you're not going to get arrested for treason. Um, so, yeah, so my, my main focus for my research is uh, masculinity and national identity. Okay, so I mean, can you tell us a bit more about that? What, what's like the classic gothic male character? Um, so you have, I mean, if we're talking archetypes, um, yeah. 
because graphic does tend to deal more in archetypes rather than stereotypes. Mm. Um, we're talking archetypes, the two central archetypes in the gothic are the gothic villain and the gothic hero. Um, the gothic villain is often also the anti-hero. Um, so in the first gothic novel, um, the castle of Atranto, the villain was this feudal father figure, so this ancient, um, and when they say ancient, they usually mean 12th century, not really ancient. Mm-hmm. Um, so the main, the, the, the villain in that novel is a man called Manfred, and he um, he is the, the lord of this castle that his ancestors um, have come to inherit by devious means. He's not the true heir to the castle. And there's a, leg, a sort of prophecy that says if his line ever ends, then the castle will fall. He's desperate to make sure that his lineage continues. At the start of the novel, uh, his very sickly son is crushed to death by a giant spectral helmet. That <laughs> <laughs> um, falls do. from the sky. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> I know. And um, rather than... Um, he, has a per- he has a daughter who's, who's very beautiful and perfectly of marriable age, but his his solution to the problem uh, of making sure his lineage continues is that he decides that he will marry the girl who has been living in his home for the last few years, who was intended to be his daughter-in-law. He decides he'll marry her himself. Um, okay. What then proceeds to happen is um, he casts off his wife, um, his daughter's horrified, and the two girls essentially run round the castle through all of the sort of secret passages and basements and dungeons. <laughs> trying to escape him. The true heir to the castle appears, but they think he's a peasant. Um, but he is this very dark, sublime, and powerful figure. So it's very feudal. And as the Gothic novel goes on, what you get usually in this archetype is this kind of um, dark, domineering, powerful, almost brutish, but not quite. It's very much that kind of classic... Um, there's something alluring about him, but he like he is morally grey quite often. So you often have in these novels this kind of sublime, almost awesome in terms of the word awestruck, um, masculine figure who represents a sort of patriarchal feudal power, and is usually pitted against the gothic hero. Who is very much a recreation of the of the chivalric Arthurian hero? So he does the right thing because it's the right thing to do, and he's brave and he's valiant, but he's also sensitive and possesses a great sensibility. So he's moved by the heroine's tears, and whilst he's often in love with her, the reason that he protects her is because she's a damsel in distress, and that's the right thing to do. So you have these two kind of archetypal figures right through the 18th century. So that's become more complicated in the 19th century Gothic when you get things like Dracula. Um, but we still, you can still see traces of those archetypes um, even today. I mean, the Gothic... I mean, I'm watching Vampire Diaries at the moment. I was just about it's to say... It's got the twin brothers yes, who are have... basically that. Exactly, exactly. The, 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 the two boys in Vampire Diaries are... A modern version of the the villain and hero archetype, definitely. Yeah. Um, it comes. It obviously um, Gothic predates Byron, but Byron's popularity does complicate yeah. those archetypes a little bit. And quite often, 
in the 19th century Gothic, you don't have the hero. The hero doesn't exist. You only have the Gothic villain. And he becomes much more of an anti-hero. Um, a really interesting um, example of the way they play with these conventions would be Beltsboro's Crimson Peak, which is very heavily inspired oh, by... Yeah. It was kind of missold as a horror movie. Mm. What it is is very much an homage to the 18th century Gothic. You can see mm. Anne Radcliffe in it very, very heavily. Um, and obviously you have Tom Hiddleston's character who is that kind of you're unsure who he really is and what his motives are and then you have Charlie Hunman, literally blonde, handsome, American wholesome <laughs> you know? yeah exactly and that's, that's the thing about the gothic and over time the gothic hero has become a sort of He's kind of been left by the wayside because he's not interesting in the way that yeah. the gothic villain or the anti-hero is um, and one of the things that I'm interested in when I talk about more contemporary texts is the way that gothic aesthetics is used when we're portraying masculinity specifically to engage the female gaze and to arouse the female gaze rather than to kind of create. I mean, it's still that terror. And when I say terror, I mean the experience of going on a roller coaster, something that is scary but opens your mind. So terror is very much that experience of you know, I'm afraid, and for a moment I fear for my life, but the experience has been an adrenaline rush, and my mind is open afterwards, whereas horror is a stunting experience that prevents you from continuing onwards. Terror is is that kind of wonder and that awe, um, and that's something that you get, particularly in the 19th and the 20th century, with the Gothic man, is that he is a figure of terror and wonder and awe, and that kind of shouldn't be attractive but is an archetype um, yeah that's Damon in the vampire Diaries. yeah <laughs> <laughs> my feminist brain is coming <laughs> but I'm going yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah I mean that's the really interesting thing about the gothic is you can talk I I gave a paper this year's IGA that was about um trauma in the gothic soldier and I started out by talking about a book that was released in 1789 and I finished by talking about Captain America the Winter Soldier and Dragon Age because even though they're 200 years apart the same conventions and the same Mm. themes are being used so you can read them side by side and I think that's one of the really amazing things about the gothic is if you want to do a text that was published I mean one of our students did Faustus which is you know Christopher mm-hmm. Marlowe, who's taking 16th century, alongside films that were published and that released in 2015. So it is, mm-hmm. it is a platform where you can speak about a whole host of things and it's not grasping at straws. You can see these very clear lines between them. Yeah. Wow. I got another really super detailed awesome answer Um, (laughs) I feel like I'm talking too much (laughs) no not at all no Um, so just to go on to the flip side of that so we've talked about the the male archetypes now what what, what are the female equivalents Uh, we already mentioned kind of women in 90s running across graveyards (laughs) but uh, like what are the other archetypes and have, have they changed like how have they changed across the sort of or, or have they stayed exactly the same mm. as in the case of like, Faustus? And... So the, the female archetype is interesting because when you first read the 18th century Gothic, the, the female characters seem useless. They mm-hmm. seem sort of wet and they seem, you know, 
like they don't do anything for themselves and they don't protect themselves. But actually, when you compare the Gothic to perhaps the novel of Sensibility, which is a trend that is about you know, two years before, the Gothic heroine, she's brave, she's smart. She is aware of the fact that it's dangerous for her to be a woman out in the world by herself, but she um, she's very stoic. She's very capable. She does faint and swoon, but actually the things that she is exposed to, um, you know, the terrors that she's forced to experience, she manages to withstand them. So whilst it's easy to see that figure of, you know, the woman in the white nighty walking down the hallway holding a candlestick, when I'm kind of scoff, and when I first started my, my PhD studies, my original PhD proposal was about the fact that the heroines of rubbish, basically. <laughs> and then as I started reading them in more depth, I realized, actually, they're not. They're these very brave, very complex. Yeah. And it's the first time... I was going to say, they're braver than me. Yeah, I mean, I think that too sometimes. I'd definitely just be like, nope. <laughs> like, exactly. I'd just be like, head under the covers. Yeah, I mean, particularly, you know, so I do a lot of Anne Radcliffe, who was the most popular gothic author, and in fact, one of the most popular authors of the 1780s and 90s. Her heroines refuse to believe in the supernatural, so they're very mm. rational and they're very logical and they're very sensible, That's but they're also, you know, so the servant is saying, oh, Emily, there's, a, there's definitely a ghost down that corridor. And Emily is like, no, there's not, and I will prove to you there's not, so I'm going to walk down there with my candlestick and I'm going to prove to you that there's nothing, there's nothing supernatural in this corridor. So actually they are very complex, and in terms of, the 18th century, it's the first time really that women are allowed to be complex and, and that female characters have their inner workings explored, so the way that they feel and why they feel it and how they think. So the Gothic, the Gothic heroine can seem reductive, and sometimes she is. There's plenty of examples of Gothic texts where the girl is just really wet and limp, but they're usually male authored. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so the gothic heroine is usually someone who um, possesses what we call in the 18th century a fine sensibility. So basically, a very perceptive, very empathetic, very aware. Um, but she's usually brave and she's stoic and, you know, she is either forced to be independent or she chooses to be independent. So I think... I mean, I, I watch something like Stranger Things and I see a character like Nancy and mm -hmm. I can see Nancy in the heroines of the 18th century Gothic. Mm. So I think the heroine is a little bit more complicated because a lot of the popular contemporary texts that we would think of as Gothic are often male-authored and the female characters are often either bystanders or they are plot devices to allow the horror or the terror to happen. Mm. Whereas in female author gothic, um, I mean, like say things like Vampire Diaries, even things like Twilight, mm. it's the, the gothic heroine, even when she's a self-insert, the reason she's a self-insert is because it's the writer inviting the reader to explore a portion of themselves in a safe mm. space. So, so yeah, I mean, the gothic heroine, I feel like she is often a really misunderstood figure because I certainly thought she was really limp and pathetic when I first started reading them. 
And as I've studied them in more depth, I've realised she's a bit of a force of nature, really. She's a she's a character to be reckoned with. And I think if I was trapped in an ancient castle that may or may, may not be haunted, I would definitely want one of them on my team. So um, yeah, I, I'm quite. I, I, I always get quite defensive of the gothic heroine because I know that I massively misunderstood her. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, and and to say that a woman is rational, yeah, um, at that times, quite a, a statement. Yeah, huge statement. And usually, you know, often, even if there is a hero, the heroine is often the one saying, "Come on, let's be serious. Like, let's be sensible." So. Yeah, you can still, I think, in particularly, Nancy from Stranger Things is an interesting character, but particularly in those those young female, kind of late teenage, um, I mean, we're all quite excited about the upcoming Sabrina adaptation. Um, I think mm. you can, there's definitely a lineage there in terms of, of the gothic female um, yeah. and, what, and what she represents. Okay, so we're nearly going to get on to games. We've still got Emily with us. <laughs> Sorry, <I'm laughs> that's, fine. that's fine. That's why I said you should get her on. <laughs> She's too good for her own good. <laughs> yeah. She knows her shit. Yes, she does. Um, <laughs> so just before we get on to games, um, I was just wondering where do we, where do you draw the line between horror and gothic, and is there is there one? Uh, yes and no. So, not all horror is gothic. Yeah. And vice versa, but there is a massive overlap. Mm -hmm. Um, gothic, obviously, in that, if you're thinking of gothic as being supernatural, as being about people's anxieties, um, you know, the zombie, for example, becomes popular during a period of time where people are worried about infection and worried about mass consumerism. So usually you can you can track trends in horror movies alongside political and cultural events. So in terms of analogy, um, there is a lot of overlap between the Gothic and horror. Um, but when the Gothic was first conceived, so uh, I know I spoke about this earlier, but this idea of terror and sublime, so the Gothic is a lot more interested. There is horror Gothic and terror Gothic. Um, the Gothic that I study is more Could you de define the sub sublime so people might not yes. know? Yes, so, um, so uh, the sublime is, um, to put it really simply, the sublime is that feeling when you um, go out somewhere or you go to a landmark or you go to a natural landmark and you have that feeling that overwhelming, awesome feeling where you can't quite behold the beauty or the intricacy of, of nature. Um, so the sublime is that kind of, that experience of witnessing something that is almost beyond human comprehension. And in the 18th century, it's often defined as man's inability to, to fully understand God's creation. In mm -hmm. more contemporary secular society, it's that kind of, that cosmic awesomeness or, you know, nature's nature awesomeness. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. <laughs> it's like that, that feeling where you kind of see something and for a moment you're dumbstruck by it and you can't quite yeah. believe what you've seen. Um, so the sublime is that, mm -hmm. 
that almost it is almost overwhelming it's that kind of yeah. like you, you're kind of and that's the terror experience and the, the way that I always describe terror is it's the haunted house or the roller coaster you know mm-hmm. that you are going to get out the other side but whilst you're experiencing it you have that rush of blood you have that fear but then when you've come through it you almost feel like you it's almost like ascending to a higher plane you have that moment of like oh my god mm. You know, it's that experience that broadens the mind and opens you up and, and like, you can connect to people. And, you know, you often, when people talk about things like near-death experiences, it's that kind of way that they talk about that. So terror is that almost pleasing feeling. Uh-huh. Like, it ter- it's terrifying, it's scary, but you almost crave it. It's that kind of, like, yeah. you feel alive afterwards. Horror was always kind of defined as something that stunts and stops so the experience of horror is more like the trauma experience it prevents you from growing it prevents you from continuing horror is something that is so horrible you are unable to continue on after it so when we talk about horror as a film genre and again i'm not a horror critic and and I would hate Stephanie Wong's toes. Um, there was a really, really great book on horror um, by a scholar at Manchester Metropolitan University, um, Xavier Zana Reyes, who I believe it was for the British Library, a fantastic book. Um, but often things that we think of as a horror similar are not necessarily horror in terms of what the word actually means. So the genre itself, and the meaning of the term that when we use it academically don't always marry up. Uh-huh. Um, so it's one of those things where not, I, I, I don't know if I've made that sound very clear and it's not very clear. There is an overlap, but then at times there, there isn't. Um, and I would say probably something like, the difference would be something like Saw and something like The Shining. Uh-huh. They, you know, they exist kind of in the same genre, uh-huh. but separately and academic study would approach them differently. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So, um, games. (laughs) 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 But, um, you're, um, you're, the the difference between sort of horror and terror and the sublime that you described of one opening and one stopping, I definitely would apply that to horror games. Yeah. Horror games yeah. just stop me. Yeah. I don't want to work. If the door opens, I'm like, oh crap, why did it have to open? If the door remains locked, I'm like, phew, maybe I just see another door. Yeah, no so, good at horror games. Yeah, no, me either. I can't do it. But, um, so, Emily, hello. Hi. <laughs> so, would you say that there is much of a gothic tradition within video games? Oh, I think there's massive gothic tradition in video games. I think if you look, I mean, when we were talking about, like, favourite gothic games um, and how we were going to do this podcast, um, mm-hmm. it's actually one of those things that one of my favorite gothic games is one of the earlier or what one of what i consider the earlier um video games which is showing my age um which is uh day of the tentacle by okay. sierra yeah. um because uh, it's by lucas but yeah by lucas sorry um <laughs> yeah. 
I always get the two confused. Uh, sh- <laughs> now I'm going to get all this feedback. Um, <laughs> no, but, uh, You've done it now. Yeah, exactly. I got the. I got, clearly, I've never played the game before. Um, but uh, yeah, so Day of the Tentacle for me was always. I think that's a great example of a gothic game because it is essentially the the haunted house, but it's also. Yeah time travel it's also uh identities changing and people <laughs> betraying each other and all this kind of mystery and all that kind of stuff um and sentient beings that are used to be tentacles and all these kinds of things and it's also got the humor i think a lot of the early gothic games um things like rogue things like day the tentacle um even things like mist um, mm. had real touches of, of gothic um, tropes and or archetypes um, and it's just continued on it just changes, I think they changed the genre really because like a lot of people when we've talked to them about gothic games they'll sort of say oh you mean Dark Souls mm-hmm. or oh you mean Devil May Cry or something that is <laughs> you know overtly gothic. Hmm? yeah aesthetically gothic yeah Yeah, exactly and a lot of people sort of go oh that's that's gothic whereas or they'll say uh like survival games like bioshock you know classically gothic and they are but at the same time i think people forget games like everybody's gone to the rapture is amazingly gothic because it's Mm. the it's it's you know it's it's the children of the corn it's the it's the town where everything's gone wrong it's very mm. stephen king it's very new england because it's this place where something everyone's gone for some reason and you've got to work out why but also you don't you don't really want to work out why because it's this kind of horrible secret um so yeah i think it's been there since the start and it it changes with genres um but there's always touches of it throughout through across genre yeah that's interesting i wouldn't have thought about everybody's gone to the rapture as a gothic game but now that you've sort of described it in those terms yeah i can absolutely see that and again it's touching on the sort of like the, the sublime in that it's this much well, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's listening who hasn't played the game before, but what that turned it's out to be... It's been a while. Yeah, it has. We already did an episode on this. So I yeah, think it's it, been it, free yeah. on PlayStation at some point, so... Yes, it has. <laughs> um, and that's the market. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but, it, but the solution to that game is that it is this much higher sort of impenetrable, impossibly big kind of cosmic power that's sort of interfering with something smaller. So that's Exactly, and it also does a touch of, um, I'm going to try here, Lauren, it does a touch of Radcliffe um, <laughs> yes. because it has that idea of, I think, uh, three quarters of the way through the game, it's that idea of, oh, maybe it was just this guy or maybe it's all mm. a scientific thing that mm. can be explained and you have mm. a lot of those false mysteries um and that's very you know like it being just people and not something cosmic is very gothic um so it's it it does really f- flirt with the genre i think mm, that's interesting yeah so um i so i mean if you want um so See, we've all answered my next question here. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I was wondering whether games tended towards a certain 
type or certain aspects of gothic because yeah the the, the stuff we've got written down as examples of goth games uh gothic games i should well, uh are like castlevania and devil may cry and to yeah. an extent things like resident evil dark souls definitely well uh, definitely th- it's also like the, they don't just do the gothic aesthetics though i think mm. it's i think you can also get gothic narratives in them um there's also lots of things that um like there's a whole sh- there's a whole subgenre of things called happy gothic, yeah. um, which is using all of those basic tropes, but then basically flipping the feeling. Um, mm. And it's this like things like bayonetta, um, yeah. mm. you know, uh, a lot of the kind of cute. Uh, like we had a talk um, at our at our conference um, this last year about um, the Pokemon town. Is it, is it Lavender, Lavender town? town? Lavender yeah. town. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Super creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, it's all different ways. Um, yeah. I mean, the Gothic also, the, the Gothic is camp. The Gothic has always had this camp element to it. And, you know, people, tend to think of gothic as being something that is inherently dark but there is this kind of you know there's always humor in the macabre um mm. so there is um there is an element like i'm said of the happy gothic but there is also um gothic is often what we call like multi or metatextual so like the first gothic novel wasn't presented as a novel that it was presented as a found manuscript and in contemporary Gothic, you have, um, you know, texts pretending to be other things or texts of interaction. So one of the things that I think Emily and I have discussed a lot about gaming and the Gothic is that the experience of play. Mm. Um, and I talked about this at the, the IGA this year, that, for example, in the Dragon Age games, you haven't, over the course of those three narratives, the, the choices that you make impact the characters. And you, the player, through your experience of play, experience things like trauma of the supernatural. So even the fact that games can be played multiple times or that there's multiple endings or that they interact with one another, that kind of the player relationship with the game has gothic elements in of itself. And that's something that I think um, a lot of gothic scholarship is moving towards now, the, the fact that it's not a case of the narrative or the play, but the way in which those two things link together to create an experience that can be read through the Gothic. Yeah. Mm. The multi-textual aspect of it. Mm. I mean, that's such a massive thing in gaming today now anyway, in the sense Mm -hmm. of how it's, you know, we don't have finished games anymore. Um, we have <laughs> we ha- we have games that never end, and we have mm-hmm. all these different ways that the narrative within that game is exposition to the player. You know, even things like when you're playing Witcher and you collect books, there you know you're collecting books that are actually about Geralt of Rivia. So it's kind of this metatextual narrative that's happening, um, mm. as well as the, mm. the metatextual that's happening with play itself. Yeah, it's really interesting because now I'm thinking about different games and aspects of them are gothic. So things like um, Her Story Mm, um, by Sam Barlow. Yeah, Yeah, with the sort of the sisters and um, it's very, um, what's her name, Virginia Andrews style kind of um, family melodrama type 
thing. Yeah, and and um, Gone Home and um, Life is Strange. Um, yeah, Life is Strange how... is a really good example. Yeah, well, like... oh, okay. So can we talk about Life is Strange a little bit? And... Yeah. yeah, I haven't. I would confess, <laughs> I haven't finished it, but I think Emily has. I haven't. So, well, as far as you've got from what you've seen, um, can mean, you talk a bit about... Yeah, just, I mean, partially the fact that you are focusing on two young women um, mm-hmm. and the relationship between between young women, again, I, and I mentioned this earlier, but the fact that the Gothic is a space where those, the minute details that almost seem inconsequential boring of a female relationship. Um, mm. can be explored um, the episodic structure um, you know the way it was released um, mm. oh gosh it's been a while since I've played it um, no, but no fine. just I mean just the, the pacing I mean another really good example is something like Night of the Woods yeah, um, I, was yeah. Those, I was wondering about that before yeah, I so you know I think there's been a trend recently of those games of the resurgent things when nothing much happens but the experience yeah. of, and I mean, we were, again, Emily mentioned the Lavender Town thing. We have had quite a lot of examples in games recently where things haven't been explained. So the fact that in Lavender Town, you're never, like, you run around the town and you're thinking, well, there must be an explanation for why there's this creepy radio signal and why there's these ghosts. And the game doesn't give you an explanation. Yeah. So you mm. as the player are left with that that kind of unknown experience, um, you know, you don't get to solve the mystery and you don't find out what's really happened. Um, and I think, I think, I mean, some of the Telltale games as well, just the way that you, the player, are forced to be a part of, but also a spectator of the story, um, yeah. it just, it's a, it's a classic gothic trope of it being used in such a new and different way. It's really exciting, actually, to see the way that video game narrative is using things like American Gothic, you know, dilapidated towns, and I mean, Night in the Woods is a fantastic example, and you and Kirkman did a really great keynote for us that mostly mostly focused on that game. Mm. Um, yeah, I think you say Gothic games, and people are like, "Oh yeah, Bloodborne," yeah. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, "Yeah, but also," and I mean, we we had this, you know, we had papers on D and D, and the obvious example was The Curse of Strahd. But even, you know, the normal, like, something like Prince of the Apocalypse is a really great example of, you know, a text that could be read as gothic. So it's, yeah, it's a really exciting field to be a part of oh, at the so moment. So interesting. So something like The Last of Us would... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Especially because that deals again with the differences between men and women between adults yeah. and children mm-hmm. it's a coming of age text yeah. which definitely mm-hmm. fills into it it's the young heroine text mm-hmm. it's yeah and it's the kind of the man who is essentially scary but still like well-intentioned and yeah. he mm-hmm. wants to protect her and he wants to be the knight in shining armor but he's got to do horrible things yeah. it's yeah yeah, it's got it all over it. Uh, that's yeah. excellent. So Joel is classic gothic uh, hero <laughs> yeah. or man. Although, although to be fair, I mean, Joel is also every every protagonist of every 
blockbuster Video game, game recently. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we often yeah. play this game uh, at work where we say, "But is it gothic?" And the answer is always yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but, even what The Last of Us did with the idea of the zombie. Yeah, um, yeah. I so I'm terrified of zombies, and I mm-hmm. once thought, well, if I find out why zombies are scary and what they represent, then maybe I'll find them less terrifying. And it made me more afraid of this. <laughs> Especially the biological aspect of the zombies in Last of Us, like the yeah. way it's like festering yeah. a yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically turns you into a fungus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot. Yeah, being creepy. Yeah, a lot yeah, of social the anxiety there. <laughs> yeah, a lot. <laughs> we need more alcohol hand jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, so so we've kind of touched a bit on um, sort of male-female characters in gothic games, um, but are there any shifts in the representation of men and women um, in, in video games that, you know, have gothic elements as opposed to other media? Or do they just follow the same... Well, I mean, one of the things... Or would they not be gothic? <laughs> They're just the, the not gothic ones. I, I think there's... I've, I mean, I, I'm saying this, this is this is one of my main arguments in my PhD, but I think there's a massive shift um, in yeah. how we portray masculine characters in games especially. Um, and I think that's happening because of, obviously, like wider social issues um definitely you're getting a lot of feedback from um feminism uh, from any kind of progression uh in women's rights you obviously always see a kind of knock-on effect but the interesting thing is that we're actually seeing quite a softening of masculine characters um Mm -hmm. and like lauren was saying I think a lot of it is coming because of this kind of commodification of the female gaze. Um, and it's this, this idea that now our male heroes um, can't, they can't no longer be that kind of stoic, closed off, super macho kind of character, because that's not what everyone wants anymore. Um, and because of that shift in kind of consumers, you're getting now these really nuanced, um, what a term that we've been using recently is um, soft masculine characters. Yeah. So it's this idea of a character who can be strong and protective and honourable, um, but also fierce and, you know, gentle, uh, hard, but soft, you know, it's this kind of duality that's happening in a lot of characters. So a good example in a Gothic game would be Geralt of Rivia in the sense that, uh, like when I started playing Witcher three, I was very much like, I knew the history of the Witcher games and I was very concerned about how women had been treated, um, how uh, black people had been treated, how history had been treated, and I was really worried about this character. And I remember when I first started playing for the first month or so, I really didn't like him um, Mm. because he seemed really gruff. And then when I started really, like, choosing actively what he was doing – and obviously he's a character that you can choose what he does and what he says, but not all the time. So this allowed for, cause I always play as a good guy. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, he was always being nice to people and he was 
helping people. But of course, because he's Geralt of Rivia, he still retains a bit of um, his own, you know, ability to control what's going on. So he would occasionally throw out these kind of gruff lines. Uh, so it'd be like, he'd be helping someone and be like, oh no, that's totally fine. I can do that. And then it'd be like, not like I care anyway. Um, so <laughs> you'd get this kind of wonderful um, thing that he was this gruff, serious character, but then he could flirt with people and then he could be nice to people and he could be whimsical. And I think because games are, mm. are doing this thing where they want everyone to be able to uh, represent them, well not all of them are, but they want representation, they want people to self-identify, they want greater immersion, and the way to get yeah, that is so there to are facets. get... Big pun? So there are sort of facets. Yeah, they, they, want, they want things to be more diverse, and because of that, our characters are becoming characters like Cullen from Dragon Age, who is this, when you look at him on paper, he's this archetypal gothic hero but because he's being created in a text that is thoroughly modern he's also dealing with trauma and he's also sharing that with his partner and being really open with her and you get this duality that you never used to get with video game characters mm. so this is a really interesting example um, he, for me um, he's an extension of some of the characters that I'm looking at in the 18th century gothic Cullen uh, in Dragon okay. Age because mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of the, the soldier hero characters in the early gothic were written by female authors and they are written mm. to be an ideal, um, a female ideal of masculinity. This is mm. what we want, this is what we want. We want a man who is brave but is also feeling and, and can draw his sword but also values me and respects me and understands me, which is quite a revolutionary thing to be saying in 1792 mm. and um, Colin is almost an extent a contemporary extension of that um, you know initially he seems you know he seems awful and depending on what you do in origins he can do awful things but then when he gets in position they like tear him apart and they lay him out on the table and as this kind of broken traumatized character the way that the game explores his psyche and how that affects the Inquisitor if she romances him is, a, is I think, really interesting um, use of a, a, an older Gothic convention in, in a very modern text, um, which, mm. not just biased, it's not just because I romanced him. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, you know, I started playing it and I thought, oh, this is really interesting because I'm seeing the same things in this that I'm seeing in this 18th century novel. Um, so I think it's, it's a really interesting way in which games and the player's choice in gaming um, is being is being channeled through those kind of like gothic frameworks. Mm. Yeah. Okay, oh, sorry. Yeah. <coughs> Drew's yeah. waking up from a rev. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I was just yeah, thinking about all the stuff I did in Drainage. Um, uh, <laughs> I didn't bother with Cullen because I knew him vaguely from the first game, so I just ignored him entirely. Oh. <laughs> um, anyway, um, yeah, well, wait. Okay, so um, this is going to be, I think this is going to be a really difficult question, but if you had to narrow it down to, let's say, three games that sort of 
do gothic really well or like demonstrate mm. some like essential facet of uh, of gothic w- what would you choose oh okay um i have yeah, been thinking sorry. about this top three questions are awful <laughs> so i think one of my choices would be child of light okay um Ooh. which in it yeah and the way that the fairy tale um mm-hmm. the aesthetic itself is quite gothic the fairy tale the young female heroine Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of nostalgia that it captures. Um, I think Monument Valley does a slightly similar thing, but it's less narrative focused. But I think Child of Light, the Gothic and the fairy story and folklore have always been kind of, mm-hmm. you know, have a lot of overlaps. But I think Child of Light is a really interesting example of a Gothic narrative in a very traditional sense, in terms of a supernatural story. Of mm-hmm. good versus evil, but that is also very interested in an inner, like the inner person. You know, it's not just a broad stroke story. It's about no. choices, and it's about relationships, and it's about the small acts towards you know other other creatures and other human beings. And I think yeah, uh, I don't the way she give, interacts with the world, yeah, and, and the sort of problems that she's and... given. I don't want to. I mean, I know the game's quite old. I don't want to spoil it because it's such a fantastic game. But yeah, I think it Child is. of Light would definitely be one of my main recommendations. Ooh, cool. um, um, I think um, actually um, Final Fantasy Fifteen for all its flaws, yeah. um, the way in which that game started out. It's quite a light-hearted road trip with your bros. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, I mean, as I was playing it, I was like, oh, the days seem to be getting shorter. And then you realise that that's part of the story. But the way that that game... Um, there is also a sort of, like, horror survival level, which freaked me out very, very much in that game. But, yeah, Final Fantasy XV, um, I know it didn't live up to a lot of people's expectations, but actually... Um, the sort of character archetypes that are used, the way the narrative unfolds, the the way that the player has some control but not complete control, the just the central ideas of light and dark and legacy and heritage, um, I think is a very classic gothic story. But again, going back to what we were talking about, about global gothic, um, I mean, I often talk about Final Fantasy X in this respect as gothic, but I think Final Fantasy XV really, for me, epitomized that meeting of, of Western and Southeast Asian Gothic um, right. in a video game format. So, yeah, Final Fantasy XV, I mean, I actually really did enjoy it. I've been replaying it recently for a piece that I'm hoping to write on it. But, um, yeah, unexpectedly, I, I found, and I know we joke, I see Gothic everywhere, but that game for me um, had a lot of, of really fantastic Gothic elements. Um and then I know we've talked about Dragon Age, but actually Dragon Age 2, um, in terms of a method, a multi-textual text, because the whole game is framed as Varric telling Cassandra a story, and you don't actually know as player whether or not the story that he's telling you is the real story. Um, so just from the fact that I think it's really fascinating that you have this game where you're playing and you're making decisions, but ultimately... What you're actually doing is playing Varric's version of events, potentially. Um, so yeah, I mean, all the Dragon Age games have a lot of gothic elements to them, but I think um, two had a lot of problems. But um, yeah, you could. I, I'm desperate to do something gothic on Dragon Age two. <laughs> 
So Lauren had no problem at all just rattling. <laughs> I've been thinking about this all day. I've been thinking. Emily said this oh, okay. morning, we might need to give our like top three picks. And I was like, oh, God, what oh, will I say? Okay. <laughs> well predicted. That was I thought those were just off the cuff. I no, like, wow. I've been thinking okay. about that all day. Uh, You're prepped. I, Emily, what about you? Uh, for me, I'm going to be uh, a really basic. Um, I'll, I'll say Witcher 3 to start with, um, mm-hmm. mainly because I, I still, I, I'm still in the world of thinking that Witcher 3 is the greatest RPG ever made. <laughs> um, yeah, and right. uh, this, is, this is someone who, who played it for an exceptionally long period of time and then got the worst ending. Um, and I still stand by that game. Um, but... I just think, like, I did a paper, um, I think last year about Witcher 3, and I wrote, I wrote an article in PC Gamer about it as well, because I literally just want to find, uh, a young PGR, a, a young postgraduate, and just grab them by the shoulders and say, okay, if you want to do a PhD on Gothic games, you need to study Witcher 3, um, because it is just, it's got everything. It has literally every archetype. Um, it's, it just goes hard and fast for the Gothic. Um, it's got, it's got haunted houses. It's got damsels. It's got, you know, people being changed into different sized animals. It's, it's, it's got werewolves. It's got vampires. It's got everything. Um, so I'll start with that. Um, for my second choice, I'll probably go for something along the lines of the now incredibly problematic um, Gabriel Knight series. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good example of what the Southern Gothic used to be known as. If you were looking for what a surface level representation of Southern Gothic, you can't really go any better than the Gabriel Knight series because... No. It's about, obviously, uh, for people who don't know, it's about a, a detective who, I think he's in New Orleans, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and he basically has a lot of uh, uh, either occult or um, religious uh, tasks that he has to do and solve these problems. Um, it's very, very gothic. Um, it's trying to be, and it succeeds. Um, but it is, I will say that it is slightly problematic. Um, yeah. Just a bit. Yeah. A, uh, a tiny, tiny bit racist. Just yeah. a tiny bit. <laughs> um, and I, I implore you to look instead at its wonderful 8-bit graphics. Um, mm. uh, lastly, I'll probably say that I have I have a real soft spot for walking simulators. Um, I also have a really soft spot for calling them walking simulators, um, even though people think that calling something That's, a walking yeah, simulator... Yeah, it's derogatory, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an insult, and why would you want to play a game where you just walk around? Um, uh, but I think walking simulators in general have this very close connection to the gothic. Um, they've mm-hmm. got a very close connection to the sublime. They're trying really hard to make you... Uh, be immersed in this other world and nearly all of them because of their nature of being slightly puzzle based um, nearly all of them are like mysteries so games like Firewatch or Everybody's Gone to the Rapture um, or Dear Esther all have elements of 
you know, mystery and wonder and the sublime. Um, plus, they're all just really beautiful games, and I really try my best to encourage people to realize that um, playing games is not just playing Call of Duty, it's not just playing Candy Crush, and it's not just playing Pokemon Go. Um, there are games out there for everyone, for any type of player, and I just feel like uh, walking simulators especially are one of those games that I often show them to people who don't play games, and it's like this whole other world is expanded for people. <laughs> um, and I think they really have that element of the kind of armchair story of you know you two mm. can solve this mystery um and that's a very yeah. gothic tradition too so um I'll so is that you. your your third game is walking simulators, <laughs> walking simulators. Oh, well I'll, I'll say i'll say uh like uh yeah so maybe firewatch or everybody's gone to the rapture um i i okay i feel bad saying firewatch because it is just a mystery but um yeah. i just i just really loved that game it's very sublime. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So there you have it. That's um, so many. This um, this show's going out on Halloween, so there are so many Halloween recommendations yes. there. Um, so I think we're going to wrap it there. It's been Yay. amazing. So yeah, thank you, Emily and Lauren. Thanks so much for coming on. I was so excited about this. <laughs> thank episode. you so much for having us and for listening to us. Yeah. So it's much. been fantastic. I want you to come back every Halloween. Yes, we can make <laughs> Don't say that. You won't be able to get rid of it. Yeah, and then, no. next time we can talk about Gotham. <laughs> yes, exactly. Afraid, Drew, we have to do an episode on Gotham. <laughs> You're going to have to watch it. Because <laughs> yeah. Emily and I are obsessed. <laughs> That's how we bonded on Twitter yeah. was through Gotham Gift. Yeah, just like, like 10 page length. Like succession yeah <laughs> i got i got no yes. work done that day because i was hunting for a new cotton kit to send emily <laughs> oh dear <laughs> so that's our inner lives um so yeah did uh, did you guys want to oh yes uh, yes Drew, talk about your things and anything oh, yeah. you want to plug any... yeah so where can people find out more about gaming the gothic is there there going to be another one and um your social media places if you want people to follow you and any cool things that you're doing um so we're on twitter at sheffield gothic Mm -hmm. um we have a conference which is running um i mean by the time this happens this goes out it will have already happened called reimagine the gothic but we do that every Mm -hmm. year and it's a conference Mm -hmm. devoted to rethinking re-examining and reimagining the gothic and it's all about taking the gothic outside of academia's ivory tower and trying to diversify it and trying to encourage new areas of study. Um, and Game of the Gothic very much came out of that. We had a very successful Game of the Gothic panel last year's reimagining. So watch this space. Hopefully there will be another Game of the Gothic, but there will always be um, gaming things going on at Sheffield Gothic, definitely. And, and your, your Twitter is? Uh, I'm at Literary Law. <laughs> which I picked in 2010 and it seemed like a good idea but if you look <laughs> if you look for Lauren Nixon you'll find me <laughs> so uh, you can also find Gaming the Gothic at at Gaming the Gothic on Twitter um, which we 
do pay attention to, even though <laughs> we don't currently have a date for the next one. Um, you can follow me on Emily R. Marlowe at Twitter, or you can go to my website, which is emilymarlowe.co.uk. You can also find um, a couple of articles I've written for PC Gamer on their website, which is pcgamer.com. Um, mm. And yeah, I, you, I, I'm just on Twitter all the time with Gotham GIFs. So hit me up and yeah. <laughs> that or, that or Do it. Gotham GIFs. It's one yeah. or the other. <laughs> It'll just make your day better, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank so, you. Yeah, so that was Argue the Toss. You can talk to us about all things gothic, all things games, films, you know the drill. We're at gameindustry.com, on Twitter at Argue the Cast. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Libs, uh, yeah, where else are we? Uh, well, all sorts of places. iTunes, all the, all the podcast places. So mm-hmm. come and say hi and uh, give us a thumbs up and all that good stuff. And happy Halloween. Yeah, oh yeah, that's us. <laughs> Until next time, Drew. Cheerio.